So, hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. My name is Alex. I'm joined as always by Martin. Hello, Martin. Hello, Alex. How are you doing today? I'm all right. I'm good. Good stuff. I'm better Glad than all right, I should say. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, okay, so this week we are talking uh, an update to some laws in the UK regarding self-driving cars. Uh, we've got our tech spot on continuous integration, continuous delivery, delivery. That's the one. <laughs> TICD. Uh, and we also have a fascinating interview with Mike Ghost coming up as well. Yep. Which, uh, good stuff. So these news stories are around self-driving cars becoming more viable in England. Um, the I believe the proposed date for the legislation passing, whether it comes into act action or not yet, is spring 2021. So we're here now. So I, I guess they're, they're firming it up now. But it's not full automated cars just yet, is it? No, it's it, it's really the technology that's in the cars today, and we talked we talked last week about that kind of autonomous car and edge compute and all of those types of things. Um, obviously, a car is a computer in effect today, and there's lots and lots of sensors on the on the um, on the com- on the computer on the car, <laughs> sensing all kinds there of is. things about ride height and um uh you know power of the engine and the ventilation system and i think on the the you know the teslas especially that you can really get into the the detail of those of the parameters that are available and the algorithms that 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 do that and that's all to do with how you control the car itself um, and obviously, there's been things like cruise control around for ages. So, some of these things are are or exi- well, a lot of it is existing technology, and it's really the legislation for that existing technology to be mm. be utilised. Really. So, has on that note, I've used I, or I've been in cars where people have put their cruise control on. How much difference is there? I mean, obviously, cruise control just sets a speed. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to see if there was ever legislation around that. Ah, yeah, would be, but it's, it's yeah. also those closed loop systems, isn't it? Mm. Um, you know, it's really the engine or the, the the engine driving the car and monitoring the speed that you set to make sure that that set that speed is achieved ultimately. Yeah, um, and there's all kind of safety systems. You say, don't press the brake or do this, do that, do the other, and some mm. of the more advanced. Um, uh, cruise controls also then add to that the car in front um so they're looking at the distance from the car in front and therefore can um, modulate the speed based on that which i know is is one of those kind of annoying things if you've got a car with a cruise control which lots of people do um i don't because i have an old car um <laughs> is uh you know you have to come off cruise control as soon as you come up behind a car or something like that which can be but the systems are in place, and some cars allow for that to be added into the into the algorithm around mm. like closed loop control. Really, um, so yeah, the legislation around that is, would have would have there been needed legislation? I guess is the the point. Who knows? Don't know. I suppose I, I assume because you're always in control. Yeah, that there is no grey area. Really, I guess it's uh, yeah. Despite yeah. the fact that the car is controlling the speed to a certain extent, you have to control where it's moving. So, you're yeah, exactly. Where here, this is very much about introducing that um, automatic lane keeping system technology, mm. which is 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 an optional on on many cars today. But you know, by rights, and there's detections on the hand, uh, you know, on the steering wheel, and things like that. If your hands aren't on the steering wheel. Um, the automatic system cuts out again. So it's not mm. like that technology isn't today. It's just not legislated to be, in inverted commas, self-driving. Um, yeah. And some of the like insurers around that have obviously, uh, you know, want clearer definitions what's meant by self-driving, et cetera, et cetera. So this is very much a, a legislation um, move, not a technology advancement mm. as such. And this is this is baby steps legislation, yeah. really, isn't it? Because it's from what we've read, 
it's yeah first of all it's alks aux technology so it's not full self-driving it's keeping the car between the lanes yeah and it's also i believe there's a speed limit on it as well so it's not when you're just cruising down the motorway i think it's up to 37 miles an hour you're allowed to use this technology so it's it's i think it's in the immediacy aimed at if you're just sat in traffic slow moving on the motorway gives you an opportunity to read the paper <laughs> like that. Yeah, I'm not sure that's in the legislation, but <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's very much to do with those those bump collisions that you get in slow moving traffic, um, which is is coming back to that human nature thing. You know, levels of concentration and slow moving traffic aren't great, um, and you get those you get those little bumps, don't you, in collisions, and even a collision at 37 miles an hour or 60 kilometers an hour is quite forceful <laughs> yeah it's enough to give you whiplash for sure. it, it definitely is uh, not something to be considered a, a slow speed but hmm. in the grand scale of things it's definitely slow so to me it's very much a um a confidence building exercise testing out the legislation working with the ecosystem of insurers etc etc to enable these types of things and another requirement is going to be based on the road itself so with um uh with cruise control you're not requiring anything else to be a part of the system um with the automatic lane system you need to be able to identify the lanes themselves yeah um, and therefore how well the lanes are marked and all those types of things uh, will will be uh, key to ensuring that, that has capability. So one thing I was considering when you're looking at those things, they're saying it's for slow traffic, which would probably be where there's a contraflow or something like that, mm. which means that the road markings aren't always the best road markings. Yeah. Okay. They will be in high traffic situations as well um, and peak hours, but yeah, ultimately, there has to be some consideration around that. I mean, motorways generally are the ones that have got the best level of um, uh, surface and markings, and that's probably where they've been dis divided or decided upon, really. Um, and then you've got the, the human aspect of it, haven't you, around uh, we already have lots of crashes and um, accidents and serious accidents, on the roads so does this system actually make things safer there's a, there's a there's a natural tendency to think all oh, technology taking over and make things worse um because i don't feel in control but that assumes that the human's great you know <laughs> that's the thing yeah we're not moving from faultless to faultful yeah, yeah it's uh yeah, it's an interesting thing to consider because, and this step as well doesn't take into account, I know we were discussing before, if this is purely one car just making the decision, this isn't them talking to each other yet either. No. So yeah, you won't necessarily see those leaps in safety, which do really come with, you know, if your car knows where all of the other cars are and what they're doing, then it has arguably a better ability to navigate safely than a human does. Yeah, but this technology will allow for, you know, a, a reduction. Well, they're quoting here in the article that automatic driving systems could prevent 47,000 serious accidents and save 3,900 lives over the next decade by introducing, um, by reducing this single largest cause of road accidents, which is human error. Yeah. You know, so there, there are some statistics behind this, which would be interesting to see um uh if if it does have an effect i think the the technology we talked about with the autonomous aspect is very much in my mind is more around yeah you might not need other bits of technology as in the road lanes and all this type of thing it would know where it is it knows the positioning in conjunction with other cars and that's where you can almost create, create uh, trains of cars and those trains of cars would be linked by information that could um, mean that that train of cars could move at a very, you know, a faster rate because the gaps between cars could be far reduced. They could all be controlled and move as one entity. Um, mm. And therefore, the, there'd be larger capacity on the roads. 
um, and they could move at faster rates and things like that. But yeah, we're some way away from that type of tech. I mean, no, these technologies aren't even involved in this type of auto driving yeah. effect. So, well, I know I've seen wonderful animations which demonstrate when you've got full automation, you know, things like traffic lights mm. are just unnecessary anymore because everybody, all of the cars know where they're going. Yes. You don't need to stop and let one lane after one lane go. They just, they filter through perfectly. Yeah. A utopian I, dream. Yes, yes. There's always that. But, you, you know, there's always that hybrid scenario that means all mm. cars have to be of that level of technology, which is not going to happen um, naturally. Um, and then you've got things like emergency vehicles and things like that. You know, they've got to recognize it's an emergency vehicle and things would be. So, it, I mean... I would love to be in a self-driving car world. <laughs> you just jump into it because what you've got there is a flexibility um, uh, of personal transport, but also then um, speed and capacity to align to that. So mm. whilst you're on those kind of yeah, motorway, you're acting as a, a single entity of a train moving rapidly. Um, and then whilst, when you're in the uh, urban areas, um, then you've got those, you know, reduced. And that slightly comes back to transport of the future or something, because um, as we talked about with zero carbon uh, aspects and life in general, do we want our city still to be having cars, for example, within them um, because of the urban space and the quality of life associated to having car-free city centers and things so maybe you know there's different ways of solving the problem um in the future but it's going to be an ever developing area that's for sure it will yeah and uh it looks like this is a good first step for us yeah exactly All you've right. got to try these things out and if it reduces the accidents and the deaths as they're predicting then why not yeah, I mean, that's the main thing as well, because I would love, as you've said, the convenience of it sounds so appealing. But yeah, I guess at the end of the day, removing human error and, you know, someone falling asleep at the wheel or drunk driving or anything like that, if you can just take that off the table, that's, yeah, yeah thousands upon thousands of deaths. So, yeah, I think it's time we jumped into our interview. So, for this interview portion of the Atlas podcast, we are joined by Mike Yost, uh, co-founder of Bennett AI, amongst many other things. Thank you for joining us, Mike. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, I guess a good way to start is what's going on at the moment? What is or What are all your various projects doing? What's, uh, what's exciting? Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, and I'd say what's going on at the moment is uh, trying to really continue my, uh, I guess, my mission for the last decade plus of helping manufacturers and uh, solution providers uh, understand the, the role and the, um, the value of using technologies in their operations. Um, years and years ago, it was called one thing, and now it's evolved to be smart manufacturing or industry 4.0 or digital transformation or industrial IoT. Um, but whatever name we want to call it, my passion is really about um, helping get the, um, the knowledge required to do that out to as many people as possible. So in a, in a strange way, or in the modern parlance, you're a bit of an influencer in that way. Then, like, that's, <laughs> that's the position that you like to be without the without the tagline, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I I, um, I cringe a bit at, uh, at at the influencer piece, but really, um, uh, I, I speak. I think of it more as a connector. Um, and uh, actually, Martin and I met through my work. Uh, I was the president of a, a global nonprofit called Mesa International um, for about a decade. And in that capacity, I was constantly matchmaking. And it, it was informal, but if I found the manufacturer that needed to know something, and then there was someone like Martin who knew it, I, I would make those types of connections. Um, and 
that was extremely valuable for me and for the people involved. So uh, I guess I would prefer connector to uh, to influencer, but whatever works, you know. I've made a note. <laughs> yeah, and then that's definitely something that's uh, run through the thread of many things you've been involved with, including some of the latest stuff as well, isn't it? It's really, it's whether it's called a, a you know, a, a marketplace or a LinkedIn for manufacturing. It's that kind yeah. of being able to connect parties together who got interested or or similar backgrounds and things like that. And I, I really think that's an important part because um, when we talk about things like innovation we talk a lot about dissemination of information and i, I think right. we're not very good at disseminating information <laughs> right but, and, and this is a part of that podcast i mean what what how do you feel about how uh, you know manufacturers in general whatever part of the uh, are using platforms these days to be able to disseminate their knowledge and information maybe even outside manufacturing uh, yeah, I, I think there's very little going on. There's there's very little clarity. Um, I think one of the challenges that we've always faced um, with the technology into uh, the manufacturing domain is that most of the technologies are not built special purpose for manufacturing. So, you know, things that happen, uh, you know, whether it's, it's databases or it's, um, you know, AI or cloud and things like that. The, typically, those types of technologies are are evolved and built and, and progress outside of our domain. And then we start applying it into our domain. Mm. And, and so, you know, I, I go back 30 years in this industry and like to say that I grew up with software in manufacturing. And back then, we used to dig our heels in and say, well, the technology is not ready, right? And then all of a sudden, somewhere along the way, the technology leapfrogged, and now it's pulling us further, you know, faster and further than we're, we're uh, uh, ready for it. Uh, but we haven't lost that mindset. We still sort of have that hunkered down, keep things to ourselves. This is manufacturing. This is different, you know. Um, and and that's where I think there aren't a lot of tools, and there isn't a lot of acceptance for sharing knowledge. Mm. Right? P people don't do it well um uh and there's they certainly don't do it at scale and to me if we're really going to move industry forward um it's gonna have to be by sharing knowledge at scale and getting access to people with knowledge uh, who, who can help them because we're way 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 too many barriers in the way both in our personal behavior and in sort of the marketplace overall to make that happen today yeah, and that's. I think that's a really interesting point because when we talk about things like intellectual property, if you like, <laughs> that intellectual property seems to be held tight to people's chest, doesn't right. it? Right, <laughs> right, right. And 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 I think the thing that that you know I experienced in my time with Mesa, and I, I was you know a Mesa member for a decade before I went and joined the uh, the leadership team there. Um, there's so much. Um, that can be shared before you ever get into an IP discussion, mm. right? Um, and some of the best companies that we know, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, um, they're willing to show what they do and, and how they they do things um, because they know that there's something different about you know their culture, uh, their approach. There's more to this whole um, game, I guess, if we can call it that, uh, than simply um, you know, saying, uh, you know, this is our architecture or these are our solutions platforms or what have you. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think that um, uh, it's really, again, some, some cultural things that uh, we got to get over. And, and the rest of the world is over it, right? I, it, it cracks me up all the time how, like, I'm not a, I would consider myself a social person, but I'm not a social media person. Like, I don't put my life online. And then I, I watch my kids and I watch, you know, younger folks than myself that put absolutely everything online. Right. And so back to your point about the IP, um, I think there's a lot of stuff that we can put out there that we can share, we can learn with and from each other that doesn't cross into the area of, oh, well, this is, this is, you know, trade secret. This is differentiated for us. This is intellectual property. And, um, so I think that the, the worlds are smashing together here and hopefully for the betterment of, you know, knowledge capture and sharing. Yeah, because one, one of the organizations in the UK, which is um, the uh, Open Data Institute, 
Um, and we had one of the, co- I think, co-founders on the on the podcast before, Gavin. And uh, that was, they had this kind of data spectrum where they talk about open data, shared data, and closed data. Okay. Not many people even consider mapping their data against a framework as simple as that or have an understanding yeah. of what data has a level of intellectual property associated to it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think you pick up some really good points about things like culture, methodologies, um, uh, you know, domain knowledge. Some of these stuff are just undervalued because we think it's all about the technology. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think that the, the process so certainly the language that we use, um, uh, the, the um, I guess the influencers back to that point of, of, of the, um, of the space, um, it, you know, it is um, prohibitive and um, the, the way that um, technology is positioned, bought and sold really plays into that. It really creates these barriers. And, and, and I have an experience. So I live in, in Cleveland, Ohio in the US. And um, I'm working with some of the regional bodies here that are trying to help manufacturers and, and not only with their current situations and, and adopting new technologies, but also with the future workers and education and training and things like that. Um, but there's a lot of them around that are saying, look, you know, don't tell us that we're dumb and we don't know what we're doing and um, we have to follow this you know corporate template of digital transformation and that sort of stuff right give us some of the resources that we need right now informed people and and you know an environment where we have access to um, you know capable solution providers and and, and capital and, and things like that um, help us break down those barriers because there's sort of this structural way people position and sell and buy the technologies that like for most folks, they sit back and look at that and they don't understand it. They don't see the value in it. And quite honestly, it's not, it's not affordable. It doesn't, it doesn't scale. Mm. Like most, I, I used to work for, uh, for General Electric and I used to tell people at that time, and this was me personally, not a corporate statement from their <laughs> perspective, but when, when I would get an initial conversation with people, um, I'd say, look, if you don't have $150,000 ready to go today, then we, we really can't talk about this, right? So it's because there's just cost involved with, you know, mapping everything out and, and deploying the solutions and such. Um, and that just does not scale to the masses. And that's really what I think can change if we're able to sort of move people through the front end of this journey better uh, than we do today. And then obviously the the cost of technologies and, and such um, are um, getting more affordable and uh, scalable and things like that, that, that should help as well. Mm. No, is, no, there, I, uh, uh, is there anyone out there at the moment who's really leading the way in this sort of approach? Any sort of exemplars you can think of? Um, as far as uh, from a knowledge sharing perspective? Mm. Um, not, not really. I, I'm really, <laughs> really struggling. So I, I, I mentioned I spent uh, 10 years um, leading Mesa. Um, that ended about two, two years and four months ago, I guess, um, when I left uh, and I went to lead the um, outreach efforts, which are focused on engaging industry and then education and workforce development. Um, and I was doing that for the U.S. National Institute on Smart Manufacturing. Um, and I, I think that they both have goals to do that. Um, but we continue to run into barriers uh, of um, some of the even you know back to, to Martin's point. It's it's not just IP, but it's even relevance, right? So if if I let go, if I'm an organization like that that's fostering conversations uh, about knowledge sharing and best practices and such, and all of a sudden I open that up, I'm I'm letting my value to the industry sort of. Uh, you know, exposing myself to that. And there's a real concern. How do we maintain members? You know, how do we maintain our relevance, et cetera? So um, I actually left um, the, the, the Smart Manufacturing Institute at the beginning of this year to focus on a project specifically, a call to action to industry to say, can we do this at scale? Can we get all the parties that are involved um, 
to the table to do something new, um, take it on in the form of an industrial project, because I don't see a place where there is, um, yeah, this is happening broadly. Um, and I think it's critical if we're going to really help drive the value for, for manufacturers. And that would be industrial guide by your side, this latest project, correct? Yeah, that's right. I, I, uh, and maybe back to the earlier, uh, hesitance I had of, of the influence or title, um, uh, <laughs> I, I think that manufacturers are, are very practical, the problem solvers. Um, and that's what I love about um, about the space, about the, the solution providers, the educators, the um, machine builders, the manufacturers, they're all problem solvers, right? And I think they're very practical people that really don't have time for experts, right? So I don't want to create an expert network. I don't want to, to you know tag myself as an influencer. Um, but I think what they're looking for is they're looking for guides that they, they would, I heard somebody say once, um, and actually this was in reference to um, a, appealing to millennials in the workforce. Uh, they said that they're, they don't care to listen to a sage on the stage, uh, but they want more of a guide by their side. Um, and so that really resonated with me. And so I, I framed up this industry project. I'm calling it uh, Project IGBES. And IGBES stands for Industrial Guides by Your Side. Um, and the high level goal is to say, look, any manufacturer that today can't find or afford a guide, um, we should be able to put the infrastructure in place, leverage um, you know, modern collaboration and, and um, tools that uh, make collaboration easier. They break down barriers of time and distance. Um, it should be a heck of a lot easier for us to share and and get people that um, need some help, uh, get them connected with people that can help them. And, and, and you mentioned a couple of times there, and I think these are key words. One is scale. You know, I think coming the to me, the technologies today scale, you know, that's not yes. a problem anymore. And that was a problem, I think, 10 years ago, because like you said, we were taking non-industrial applications, like, you know, even from a database technology point of view, they really weren't that suitable for the, the flexibility required by manufacturing and the change that happens in manufacturing environments continuously. I think there's this perception, especially from an IT community, that you put it in once and you forget that, you know, yeah. where we know it, it's, the, it's the dynamic nature of the change that is the most important bit within a, within an yep. IT organized or an OT space uh, in manufacturing. Yeah. But then we have to be, have to have it to scale. Yes. Um, and yeah. that's only the only once we get to that level of scale, can we start to drive some economic, you know, economics of scale? Right. And I think that's the bit that's missing when we do when you talk about breaking down barriers. Well, we have it's not a yeah, technological barrier, it's a, it's a mindset barrier. Right. But you have to, if you want cheaper, better solutions, You've got to share, you know, right. because yeah. at the moment it's, it's like you know, it's, it's a it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Right. Mindset we have at the moment. You're going to get expensive stuff because everything's a tailor-made suit. Well, right. What do you expect? Yeah. You're going to get a tailor-made yeah. suit every time. Right. <laughs> yeah, there is absolutely no doubt um, from a, from a scale perspective that. Um, we're not used to behaving that way from as, as an industry, right? And, and we still talk, people still talk a lot about starting small, you know, growing over time, um, which I'm completely fine with, um, you know, doing due diligence and such, uh, making sure that things work. But I hate, I hate the, the discussion of, uh, you know, proof of concept, um, because we've proven these concepts for decades, right? So now it's a matter of what can we do from the, you know, um, the technology perspective from contextualizing data and having information models and, you know, things like that, that are, are transportable as opposed to just locked in in essentially custom, you know, whether it's custom connections or it's custom applications. Um, we, we definitely on that front and, and I'll get way out of my depth if I go too far on, on talking about technology on the, on the plant floor solutions. Um, but if we pull it back over to the conversation about, um, you know, growing the knowledge base in industry uh, again I, th I think you're right it, it is it is scale and um, I think one of the great things over the last handful of years go back over that decade that you just just mentioned Mark uh, is that um, uh, 
this topic has moved to mainstream. Mm. Um, you know, Mesa was founded as the uh, Manufacturing Execution Systems Association back in the early 1990s. Um, it quickly changed to be the Manufacturing Enterprise Solution, so it was broader than that. But for years and years and years, uh, when when analysts laid out the space, there there was no MES space, you know, in mm -hmm. the in the diagrams, right? They 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 didn't it didn't make mainstream until you know certainly within the past decade. And I was on a call yesterday and heard somebody say again, you know, that the three pillars are, and they talked about uh, ERP, PLM, and MES, right? So I think that this space has. Um, grown in understanding and uh, importance and a lot more people are talking about it and i think that um, they're willing to talk about it and they've learned and there are a lot more people that are now experienced in in you know our space even though i, I consider um you know the space that we play in a pretty um close community and and not a huge um circle there it's certainly growing with with people that are um you know gaining in knowledge and experience all the time and i think there's a lot more folks that have a lot more to share and and that's where i think we can really start to drive some value and it's gotta it's gotta be built for scale right from the beginning I, I agree. And the, one of the principles that we're talking about here is not you proof upon do something once, then scale it is kind of what we're talking about. You know, don't do something, lots of things, and then scale it after you've done the lots of things. Right. Um, and, you know, and that's that when we've talked to uh, there's two, two points. This is when we've talked to these kind of global manufacturers, they can't get their head around that for one. Mm -hmm because their organization is not structured to allow for that. You sure. know? <laughs> That's half the battle. So how are they going to leverage the benefit of that kind of technology when we're saying, right, do it once, now scale it across your 50 plants? Right. When they're yep. all acting as individual entities, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's it's interesting that, that point because, you know, the, the roles that I've been in and a lot of the talk, um, at least that we see in the U.S. and I think globally is is um, about the smaller organizations. Now, small companies don't have the capabilities that the large companies do. But I work with a lot of large companies that are right in the same spot that you just talked about, and they're not in a position to uh, to, to roll out and scale and, and think of those terms. They're still solving problems where they are, and it, it really boxes them in um, in a lot of ways, especially when you get into what you know acquisitions and you know bringing systems together and now we're talking about supply chain resiliency and we've seen the effects of the pandemic and um you know what that did to global supply chains and how, how do we improve that and you know communicate across the supply chain and things like that um which obviously we've been talking about for a long time but i think that now um people are going well yes this is very very serious that we need to figure some of these things out um but i guess the 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 point I'm trying to make is that even the larger companies, um, you know, a sizable company could still be faced with the, the challenges that you just brought up. Yeah. Well, I think the majority of them in my experience still have yeah. <laughs> Even if they're branded under the same label, each, each factory, each department. Um, yeah. It's, it's amazing how much uh, efficiency could be driven in that way. Um, yeah, well, and, and if I could just stick with that for a second, when I when I was at when, go back to one of the things that inspires me is is again that um, um, manufacturers are problem solvers, right? Mm -hmm. When you look at at the the any specific problem, I have no doubt we can solve, right? You look at the way, I mean, <laughs> the, just some of the manufacturing processes and the way things are built and just, I mean, the, the, it's just absolutely amazing to see the innovation that people, that people have. Um, the question is, how do we solve lots of problems and how do we solve this problem and that problem at the same time? And how do we, probably the biggest disappointment I've had over the years in the technology conversation is when we've taken new technologies and solved yesterday's problems. So we've basically taken um, a, a problem that, that we've solved, uh, you know, through our solution sets. And now we have, you know, uh, 
IP-based uh, wireless scanners that we introduce, and we're now using the, the, the current day technology, but we're still solving the same fundamental problem, mm-hmm. right? To me, smart manufacturing is, and I've talked about this before, it's the and story. I can solve this problem and that problem and the next problem from a scalable perspective, and I can use the data and the insights and the, the, the learning um, to solve problems that I don't even know I, I can predict, right? We can't engineer every solution and be prepared for what comes around the, the bend, the next corner. And that's where I think um, we, if the technology is really going to serve us in the way that um, you know Industry 4.0 or digital transformation promises that it can, it's got to allow people to innovate and I think one of the challenges that we have is if we compare to like like um, uh, creative people that are you know musicians or they're playwrights or whatever they're constantly creating right they're constantly in that mode um, and I th- and I'd love to see that in manufacturing where we because people are constantly problem solving mm. problem is when they problem solve something it, they an old boss of mine used to talk about they use duct tape and bailing twine, right? So um, that just means they solve it with whatever solution set that they have in front of them. And then they go solve the next problem with whatever technology that they have in front of them. And then all of a sudden those two problems are islands and they don't you know, help each other. So to your point, if we have scalable technology stacks and um, you know, easier access to um, a solution set that could solve that problem and that problem, be on a common backbone or at least have a way to communicate with each other. Now we start to stop problem solving ourselves into a bigger problem because (laughs) the technology helps us, you know, scale things out. That's a, I think that's a really brilliant description because problem solving, we're very good at actually drilling further down, (laughs) you know, that kind of uh, rationalization of that when we can get down to the finite, end of whatever that problem is but what we talk about here is actually coming back up the scale and going how do we make systems and systems work together how do we yes. you know and and it, i think it's it is a different mindset because it's a it's a multidisciplinary appro- approach to problem solving isn't it which very much so yeah <laughs> whether the engineering mind still works at that level but yeah problem solving is always great fun yeah yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, um, I, I, I like to tell the story uh, when I first got into um, to the MES field. Um, I, one of the first projects that I went into was a an automotive tiered supplier that was making instrument panels um, for one of the large uh, automotive OEMs. And my company was called in to help them fix the line, help the supplier fix the line. And um, uh, we walked in and just were surveying things. There was very little technology. There were fixtures and, and you know, automation and stuff like that. But there were these two, like, obnoxious green screen terminals, like, at midway through the line and at the end of the line. And I was like, what in the world are those things? And turned out that they were um, terminals from the OEM manufacturer themselves that basically they tunneled into their supplier's plant and they said, we're getting this data at this station for every part that goes through the line right and it brought no value at all to the manufacturer themselves so we put a system in place that helped them from an error proofing perspective and a component parts perspective and you know balancing work content and all that sort of stuff and it was able to give the oem the information that they were that they were looking for right so um you know, we were able to, to solve both problems, you know, from a data communications perspective, as well as a, a, a plant performance perspective. But I think to, to your point, what triggered that thought to me is this point of how do we think about this um, from a more global perspective? And then um, how does, how do we define what information we need off of that environment, right? If we know the information you need, because it ties into something from a traceability perspective or a compliance perspective or, a you know, quality, energy, productivity perspective, um, we can provide that information. Um, And I think that that's another part of the thinking is, do we really understand what information we need and provide it 
versus nowadays people are just saying, all right, our answer is we're going to collect everything and we're going to throw it into a data lake, right? It's like, okay, you know, <laughs> what are we going to do from there? Right? <laughs> um, I, I think we'd love to keep talking. I've got some specific questions that would be interesting about innovation, but I think we're... Uh, we're uh, coming to the end of our time slot really here alex but um it'd be great we to are we'll have to come back for another round uh, <laughs> soon well, uh, so yeah, thank you thank you so much for joining us mike it's been a pleasure uh yeah getting to know you getting to know your projects and uh like i say we'll have to come back there's yeah, too much I, to talk about well i appreciate that and i know um uh, I'm a talker, so uh, if I talk too much, I apologize, but I'm certainly available and, and willing to contribute to the dialogue any way that I can. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Leave them wanting more, I say, Mike. <laughs> Love it. <laughs>
let's take it a bit at a time then. Continuous integration. Uh, I guess this is, does that fall somewhere around or include things like the Internet of Things, the Industrial Internet of Things? Uh, it includes everything, really. Like I said, um, it's more, um, and sometimes this is drawn as a figure of eight or an infinite loop. And you have the kind of continuous integration on one side, which is planning your activities, coding them, building them and testing those activities. And then you've got on the right-hand side, which is your continuous delivery, is where you release, deploy, um, operate, and monitor. Um, so you kind of got these phases to it, and whether it's IoT or whatever it is, that will follow the same cycle. Um, but it's how you manage that cycle, ultimately. And like I said, so from a planning point of view, you've got to create a set of... Um, uh, plans and those plans if you're using a ux approach um, will be based on user personas based on those user personas you look at the jobs they have to do and then you'll describe what those jobs are and you break them down into a level that you're going to go right okay i want to create a function that will um, meet that job to do for that persona so then you'll break that down into why work items so you might have done a bit of uh, you might have added those things into your backlog items. So that's a list of things that you want to carry out. You move those items into a sprint plan. Um, if you are using sprint, uh, and we we tend to use a kind of more of a Kanban method rather than um, plan sprints, but that's, that's they're just different methodologies around that. Uh, so then you've got basically defined this package of work you're going to carry out to a level of detail. But that package of work includes what coding you're going to do, what infrastructure as a code, so the infrastructure changes that are required to facilitate the bit of software that you're generating, and most importantly, the test cases that relate to that thing that you're building. So up front, you can create those work items and plan the activity around those types of things. Um, so when we're talking about sort of two to three week release cycles, uh, that's the kind of activity you will happen will happen on you know, day one of that that three week cycle. Um, so very different methodology from from the output. You're not trying to get a whole list of requirements. You're not trying to plan a project. What you're trying to do is go. I'm accepting as a business that I'm going to adopt continuous integration, continuous delivery, as a methodology for solving um, my business's problems. So from the outset, that's a key part to it. Once you've got those um, artifacts created, then you can commit those artifacts into what they call a, a, a Git repository. Um, and there are many different sort of Git repositories uh, out there. Um, Azure have their own uh, Azure repos that you can push them into. Um, uh, there's GitHub and all kinds of things. I did try and find out what if Git is an acronym or something like this to get a bit more. I've always wondered yeah. and never thought to look. Yeah, exactly. But in those in those repositories can be everything. They can be your resource templates uh, for your infrastructure as code, for example. So for all of those kind of underlining uh, infrastructure, you need everything from your VPNs to your servers to your databases to your to your um, cluster management, all of that thing can be defined in a resource template. Then you've got all your policies, your procedures, your security, um, all of those kind of things, and your, your manifests, if you like, for your um, um, and IoT parts. So you can store all of those elements into these repositories. Once again, I've got full traceability about how when they were when they were. Um, uh, committed um, and uh, then, then from that once you have everything in place in your git repository you can trigger a build and that builds an internal build really and that build doesn't have to be released into any kind of environment but it might be where you carry out your kind of unit test you see so your first level of testing at this point and that's generally carried out by your developers who will look at collecting those sources together um, build a solution, once again, coming back to that kind of analogy around it, and using the Azure build, um, build pipeline, um, then we can, yeah, you can build those solutions. As a part of that building, uh, really, this is where we start to get a bit into the security. So you can do some vulnerability scanning of the system. So it's looking for 
potential uh, loopholes in your code or your configurations to see if there's any obvious security breaches, um, including you know visible passwords or whatever it is. Um, and then you can run your kind of unit test to make sure those individual parts of the system are going to work correctly as a part of that. Um, and once again, that allows you to apply some levels of standards. Um, so you get these standard policies and procedures that you can apply at this point. You can apply uh, vulnerability standards and you can uh, uh, have some values. And what I mean by that is some coding values or standards around how you carry out those things. So one, okay. once you're happy with that, then you push that into, um, you publish that as artifacts onto the in effect, in Azure, Azure artifacts, ready for when or if you want to do a release. So you could go around that build loop four or five times a day, um, just picking work items off of your your uh, sprint plan, developing those work items, committing committing to repository, and then building them and building them. Um, so that phase is that uh, sort of continuous integration because you're continually building and integrating the system in the background and putting those artifacts into a repository ready for when you want to do a release. So it's very much that agile idea of lots of small developments rather than one big monolithic development. Is that correct? Yeah. And so you might develop stuff that you don't want to publish yet for example. Yeah. So you, you don't have to be as strict um, around, like I said, the, the sprint plan itself. I mean, like I said, we use more of a Kanban approach, which means whatever's next on the list pops off and you start developing it regardless mm -hmm. of the sprint period. Um, so that actually just means that you're continually um, developing and integrating. And the actual deployment phase, which is the next deployment phase, is really just picking off whatever artifacts that you have tested into the environment and um, uh, and then publish them into a a, uh, a released build or multiple builds. So at this point here, you're really thinking, I'm going to make a, a release. So here we're probably at, um, yeah, we're at week uh, two, if we were into a three-week cycle. So mm -hmm. then you're looking at what artifacts do you want to want to release, um, and then what you do is run that release pipeline, which is uh, an automated process once again. So it's automatically building the infrastructure, so using the infrastructure's code. Um, it's creating those functions, those integration points, and all of that configuration for the system, and also running some automated testing. Um, so you can also do the automated testing every build as well, as well as every release. Uh, mm. And that automated testing is very much driven from a user front end point of view. So you're kind of running these scripts that is running through what you think a user would do when they're interacting with the front end of the system. And then mm. it's monitoring to see if the responses are correct. Um, so when you look at that kind of from a, a previous manual approach, you know, we're talking months of effort, really, uh, to be able to manage that kind of release. Um, and there's two types of testing we really do at that stage. One is regression testing, which is a whole suite of tests to ensure that everything, any changes to the system, um, uh, there hasn't been any side effects that you weren't aware of. Um, and therefore, you've got that. Then you've kind of got some manual testing that will carry out. Um, and that manual testing happens in the test environment. So as a part of that release process, it will create all of those artifacts and, and create a test environment of which we will carry out some manual testing. Based on mm. those manual testing, we will create some automated testing to match those manual tests that have been carried out. Um, and each stage, so we have a test stage, a user acceptance stage, and a live stage. Um, and uh, it, through those stages, there's a gated process. So there's a, a gate to add stuff into a stage, and there's a, uh, there's a, a, a approval to release things from a stage. So, for example, the tester will, the developers will release into the test stage, and the tester will, once they've completed their testing, will approve the test stage um, before it goes into the user acceptance taste, uh, stage, for example. Um, mm -hmm. And then from the UAT, it goes into the live stage, et cetera. And all of that is managed in a, in a, like I said, a completely traceable way 
ensuring that um, yeah, the end result is a really flexible system to deliver um, in a rapid way using the most modern techniques for testing, making sure we get end up with happy customers ultimately. Yeah. And that uh, you're continuously delivering. Yeah, because so while, the D there. But basically, yeah. So while the testers are testing that release, the developers are already developing the next artifacts for the next thing that comes off of the board. So it's yeah. not even a linear process. You know, it's very much a, um, a circles within circles, really. <laughs> um, um, mm. But it's completely managed. It's completely traceable. Uh, and that's the beauty of these types of platforms is, uh, um, you know, and one thing I would say, that's fine for us who are developing SaaS applications. But if I'm a major business as well, I would be looking at this methodology because the biggest problem the businesses have today is that they can't cope with the backlog of requirements that the business demand from an IT department. There's a big differentiation yeah. between that. Um, it's that technical debt we talk about. Yeah, there's two sides. There's technical debt, which is managing your existing infrastructure. And then, mm. which takes up a lot of people's time. And then you've got the, how do I then manage the new requirements that are coming in from the business whilst I'm trying to still manage the technical debt? Yeah. Um, so you, you're getting a double whammy there. Um, and that's the reality of most businesses. And the trouble is without adopting, in my mind, this kind of methodology or this approach and using cloud to be able to scale their businesses, uh, they, they won't be able to break that. But that takes a few things to occur. That takes a different um, methodology on how you contract it, people to, to provide the services to you, uh, which is a big mm -hmm. part of it. You know, they've got to move away from a project mentality. Um, you've, got to, you've got to embrace continuous development um, as a part, core part of your business, agile methodologies, uh, you've got to you've got to look at the way your business is set up to. So if you develop this thing once, you can scale it across your business in a global way. Um, so there's a whole load of uh, yeah holistic um, things that need to come off the back of this. That is, you could have this wonderful DevOps chain that produce stuff every you know every two to three weeks, and then you could deliver it to one person in your business, and they you know and yeah. they don't get the scale of it. Um, so how do you manage the human element of it to accept this type of methodology across 100,000 users? Mm. It's, it's I think that's something we covered as well in our chat with Mike Yost, isn't yeah. it? That if you are a multinational spread across the globe corporation, then to adopt these kind of approaches, you have to stop thinking in individual pods mm. and start thinking as a whole. Well, you have uh, to start with yeah, the, yeah, you have to start with the user user persona, yeah. user jobs to do, and those users should be in every part of your business. Yeah. So you are thinking of the user, and you're trying to understand them, and you're trying to deliver to them, but that user's everywhere in your business, not in one particular office or one particular factory. And therefore, you have to you have to provide the, the solution to that individual, but you have to understand that individual, and that's where the UX part comes into it. And I think... We had Kwani from our team talking about UX previously, but it's such a key part of the whole methodology. Yeah, should be at the heart of it all. Okay, well, that is fascinating. Again, I think we've probably slightly run over on time, but also we could talk for twice the time again. So we'll come back. Maybe we'll split it in two and do a two-parter at some point. So that's it for another episode of the Atlas podcast. Eclectic, as always, I think. We covered a lot of bases there, I think. Well, they, they're eclectic, but they do they link together? There's a bit of link in there, surely. Maybe. I think there's a thread. <laughs> let's, let's imagine there is for our own benefit. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, I've gone this week for a quote. I've chosen an Albert Einstein quote. I know that's risky because almost all of them are misattributed, but I'm I'm taking this from Wikipedia, so I believe in them. Uh, and he said, I never think of the future. It comes soon enough. <laughs> that thing that you were saying about the most things are uh, misattributed, I think that goes for a lot of things, you know. I think a lot think of so. theories and, uh, you know, even like... Um, um, 
you know what 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 laws or or science laws are attributed to people aren't actually the people they're kind of yeah almost like given to them through posterity or whatever aren't they so. well i think there's the three steps of scientific discovery is you discover it 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 gets refuted then it gets attributed to someone else <laughs> That's it. Is this your own quote now, Alex? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Your quote. Start <laughs> well, I'll start sneaking my quotes in under the guise of Albert Einstein soon. <laughs> well, Alrighty. it's been a great episode, a bit more lengthy than normal, but that's because we love talking about things. Yeah, we've got a good old natter on. Mm-hmm. All right, I will see you next week, Martin. Okay, cheers, Alex. If you have any thoughts on the Atlas podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at weareatlas.com. Follow us on Twitter at ATS underscore Atlas, and you can like our LinkedIn page found in the episode description. If you want to know more about Atlas products, services, and projects, head over to our website, weareatlas.com, to find out more.